0: Grace and peace to you. This is Lieutenant Roger McCourt from the Salvation Army in Eureka. Thank you for your interest in our message. If you would like to know more about us or what we do, just find us on the web at EurekaSalArmy.org or email me, Roger.McCourt@usw.salvationarmy.org. at usw.salvationarmy.org. Thank you for listening. Grace and peace to you all today. So we are going through a series of different encounters we find in Scripture about where people meet Jesus and how it changes them. Because every encounter with Jesus in Scripture seems to involve changing lives. Not just going on the way things had been before, something dramatic changes. It's not always good, at least not for the person in question, but something always changes. And today we're going to talk about a guy named Nicodemus. And this is in John chapter 3. So if you've got your Bible, find John chapter 3. (coughs) Excuse me. I should have brought my water up here. I don't need it. I'm okay. Now the setting here in John chapter 3 is Passover in Jerusalem. Now this is right after Jesus has started his ministry. And it's a little odd that the fourth gospel doesn't follow the same chronology as the other gospel writers. But all of the gospel writers kind of have a tendency to rearrange things to make their point. So in uh, in John, we get a largely chrono- chronological story. Well, mostly, it's from point A to point B to point C in time. Um, and this particular point, like I said, this is early in Jesus' ministry. And it's Passover in Jerusalem. Passover was the biggest festival of the year. Most of the year, the population inside the city of Jerusalem during the first century is about 600,000 people. It was a major city. But during Passover, the week of Passover and about a half a week on either side, the population of the city would swell to between 2 and 3 million people. Just an enormous number of people crowded into a relatively small area the people would stay wherever they could in the city or nearby and when they they went out for the night because they'd be in the city for activities during the day but when they went out for the night they would either just uh, find a spot right along the city walls or somewhere nearby and wherever they stayed it had to be within a sabbath day walk which is about a mile and a half each direction. Now, there's a small town named Bethany on the east side of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is right up next to Jerusalem. And if you go out of Jerusalem and along the road to Bethany, it is almost exactly a mile and a half. So that was pretty much the maximum extent of your Sabbath day walk. There was a guy who lived there named Lazarus. And he had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And there are some scriptures that we read about these people. And uh, Lazarus seems to have been someone who was uh, a person of some prominence. He he may have had money or land or both, uh, but somehow he was well known to the priests in Jerusalem. And Lazarus was a beloved friend of Jesus. Jesus would often go and stay with Lazarus when he was visiting Jerusalem. Likely, this is where Jesus went during this particular Passover. This is the first Passover after his ministry started. Now, we know that Jesus stayed with Lazarus during his last Passover. I'm just guessing that this is where he stayed during the first one. I can't tell you 100% for sure. But likely, this is where Jesus was. He was at Lazarus's house, was outside the city, and he got a visitor who was completely unexpected, who came that evening. This is John chapter 3, starting at verse 1. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night, and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God was not with him. Now, as the author of the fourth gospel describes it, this is, like I said, early in Jesus' ministry. And Jesus, when he had got there, he had arrived and he had gone to the temple and in the temple he had found a market for livestock and money changing that was taking place in the court of the Gentiles, which was a big court that everyone was allowed into. So no matter who you were, if you came to worship God, you were allowed in the court of the Gentiles. Now to get to the court of the women, the court of the men, the court of the priests or the holy of holies, you had to have different levels of credentials to go that far. But everyone was welcome in the court of the Gentiles. At least they were, until one of the high priests set up a marketplace there. It sold livestock for sacrifice. It changed Roman money, which had pictures of people and gods on them, for temple money, which were good, pure silver coins. And Jesus was a little ticked off. And he got there and he said, You have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And he grabbed some cords, turned them into a whip, and began to drive the livestock out across the courtyard. He completely disrupted what was going on here. He flipped over the money changers' tables; Coins went all over. He went to the people who were selling doves for sacrifice. And he pointed at the cages and he said, Get these out of here. They do not belong here. And the people were understandably, a little perturbed at his actions. And a group of them came to him and they said, Wait a minute, who are you? Where do you get the authority to drive people out of the temple? This is in John chapter 2. Back a few verses from where I had you start. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Which was not exactly the answer that they were looking for, but it completely threw them off. And no one stopped him. And he continued to teach there. And he would come back again later on in his ministry and disrupt this same mercantile area, put a stop to the the selling and buying that was going in more or less the same way just in that last week right before his arrest. So this happened at the beginning and then he's going to come and do that again at the end. But for now, he was content to have disrupted this And he's going to teach and heal. And as he does his teaching and as he does some of his his healing, some of the wonders that he is known for, word about him starts to spread. Who is this guy? What is he doing? And people hear about him healing the blind or making it so that people who have never been able to walk could walk. It's amazing. And this is when Nicodemus came to him. Now Nicodemus, we're told, was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, just to give you a history, that was the Jewish ruling council. They were in charge of everything. There was the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, had 71 members, and some of the larger cities outside of Jerusalem, they had what they called lesser Sanhedrins. They each had 23. They were like smaller courts. And they would pass important cases up to the great Sanhedrin, the big court. And the Sanhedrin started about 200 BCE, before Christ, before the Common Era. And it was made up of three groups of people. Uh, the high priest, the elders and tribal and family heads, and the scribes, who were the legal experts who kept everyone doing things the way they were supposed to. And there were two main groups of people inside the Sanhedrin. There were the Sadducees, and there were the Pharisees. And the Sadducees, well, we'll get to that in just a minute. The the Sanhedrin as a whole was the head of all religious and criminal and civil authority. There were only two people who could outrule the Sanhedrin. The king who was established by Rome and then Rome because Rome was in charge of everything. The Sanhedrin among their responsibilities they did all the trials. They took questions about religious and lifestyle issues and they were responsible to identify the Messiah. It was part of their code. It was very important that they would go and investigate every claim of Messiahship because over the 40 years previous to Jesus arriving, there had been over a dozen people who had started uprising saying, I am the Messiah, I am the one you've been waiting for. And the council would go and interview these people and try to decide, is this the Messiah, is this not the Messiah? And in every case, they would decide, that's not the Messiah. And they would denounce the person and let them go their way. But once they'd been denounced by the Sanhedrin, their movement was essentially dead. In fact, later after uh, the resurrection, Peter and the other apostles kept preaching about Jesus, saying Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus was the one, he is resurrected, he is raised to heaven. And they didn't really know what to do about that. So in Acts chapter 5, starting at verse 34, we hear about how they brought all of these disciples of Jesus in. And they said, what are we going to do to these guys? I think we have to have them arrested. I think we have to have them killed. But in Acts 5, 34, it says a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. And then he addressed the Sanhedrin he said, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Judas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. But he was killed, and all of his followers dispersed, and it all came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and he led a band of people in revolt. But he too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. If their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Pretty wise thinking. Gamaliel was a pretty wise man. He was respected by everyone in the Sanhedrin in spite of the fact that he was a Pharisee. And the Sadducees, they were the majority in the Sanhedrin. They were a large majority in the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a leader among the Pharisees. Pharisee, by the way, is a word that means separated one. Separated one. They would separate themselves from the things of the world. They felt that there was too much Greek influence coming in. This was back around 160 B.C. There was people who said, you know what? The Greeks are taking over everything and their ways, their worship habits are getting into our lives and we need to get out of that. So they separated themselves and tried to live pure lives. They were a minority in the Sanhedrin but they were a majority in the world outside. They kept themselves pure from any corrupting influences and they had this highly developed tradition of rabbis teaching and turning people into students. And really the only thing that made them different from the Sadducees were three doctrinal ideas. One, the Pharisees believed everyone has an immortal soul. Two, Pharisees believed in bodily resurrection. Everyone's going to be raised from the dead in their body, not just some ghost spirit form. And three, they believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees thought there was just one life. They had to live in this miserable world, and then when they died, it was over. So you might as well make the best of it. That's why they were sad, you see. That was a joke. You can... Laugh or ignore it, that's all right. <laughs> the Sadducees tended to be the priests and the politicians. The Pharisees tended to be the the layman, the educated layman, the over educated layman. They knew the law and they knew the law very well. They focused on all the little details about following the law. In fact, they did that so often and so much that Jesus said they missed the point of the law because they focused on the details. They were very conservative and much less political than the Sadducees. So, Nicodemus, part of the ruling council, head of the Pharisees, comes at night out of Jerusalem to visit Jesus in Bethany. Now, don't read too much into the fact he came at night. I've heard people preach about, oh, he's timid or he's frightened or he's trying to hide his his interest, but... That doesn't really fit with the character of someone who is a leader in their system. It could just have been the only free time he had. It was Passover. He had responsibilities during the day. It might have been the only time that he knew where Jesus was going to be. Jesus didn't post his his calendar up and say, okay, from 2.30 to 3.15, I'll be disrupting the temple. None of that. It is possible that Nicodemus didn't want to be seen with Jesus without knowing more. But he really does seem to have made up his mind by the time he goes that Jesus was someone more than just a guy. He seemed to think he was important. Remember in verse 2, he came to Jesus at night he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God was not with him. And there's all kinds of things just in that sentence that make you think that he has some belief in Jesus as more than just a guy. First, he calls him rabbi. And for someone who is one of the Sanhedrin to call anyone a teacher is something. And even if you try to read some sarcasm into that, it seems unlikely given the setting. But if you try to, you have to look at the fact that he's saying, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. That's not a statement that anyone would make lightly, especially a rabbi in the Sanhedrin, especially a Pharisee. And he's not just speaking for himself. We know you are a teacher. Verse 3 Jesus replied, and you know, before I tell you Jesus' reply, I think that this is kind of odd because most people would say, Oh, hi, nice to meet you, especially when someone comes in and says, I understand you're a teacher from God. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. A little abrupt, a little cryptic. Jesus is just leaping right into it. He knows where Nicodemus is at in his mind, and he's like, okay, we're just going to meet you right where you're at. I'm not going to go through any small talk or any pleasantries. We're just going to get this out. Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Well, how can someone be born again when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they could not enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, is he just being obtuse? Is he a foolish man? No, he's one of the elite teachers in Israel. He's a smart guy. There is, however, a custom of Jewish rabbis. They like to push at impossible meanings in order to exclude them from the possibilities. To pull out the true meaning of what's being said. So essentially what Nicodemus is saying, he's saying, look, you cannot mean that a man is to enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. So what is it then that you do mean by that? That's what he's asking. What do you really mean by that? Verse five, Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again because the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Let me start by asking this question. Where does the wind come from? The sky. The sky. Which part of it? Depends on the day. Depends on the day. (laughs) Comes offshore, right? We're on the coast. There's always offshore. Offshore wind. Big offshore. How far do you go offshore before you run into yourself? (sighs) At this latitude, about 19,000 miles. (laughs) Where did the wind actually start? You really can't know where the wind comes from. That's kind of weird. Well, there's a high pressure system and a low pressure system, and they come together and then you have wind. Where did they come from? They came from wind. I guess Jesus has made his point. Wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So we've got two births here. We've got water birth, and we've got spirit birth. They are two separate births. By the way, I hate to contradict anything that my Southern Baptist Seminary professors ever taught me. One of them was very insistent that this refers to baptism. He is incorrect. This is not a reference to baptism. This is talking about two different things. Born of water. Those of you who've ever been present at a birth know that it is a very wet event. Sorry. My son, when he was born, they said, Do you want to cut the cord? I'm like, No, I paid you for that. Oh. When there is birth, flesh gives birth to flesh. That comes with water. It's a physical thing. Spirit, non physical thing, gives birth to spirit. Entrance to the kingdom is by rebirth through the spirit, is what Jesus has just said. Now, Nicodemus, hearing this, is going to hear entrance to the kingdom is not by conforming to a set of guidelines. That was a major teaching in the Pharisees. If we do everything laid out in the law perfectly, all of us, then the kingdom of God will be here. Jesus is saying this is not by conforming to guidelines. This is not birth by being born into a certain family or a certain ethnicity. This is an inward change brought about by God, not by man. Spirit births you. It puts you on God's path, which could mean anything, because the wind goes where it will, and you don't know. To which Nicodemus replies, verse 9, the absolute best question anyone could possibly ask at that point. How can this be? This is not him saying, what? No way. This is him saying, how does it work? I get this. I understand. How can this be? This is a plea for direction. He wants to know how this experience that Jesus is talking about could be his. Because nothing in the Judaism he knew offered anything like that. And Jesus, ever, ever the one with the quick helpful answer. Number 10, verse 10 says you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things literally it says are you the teacher of Israel see nicodemus was apparently not just a rabbi he was the teacher of Israel there was something about him that set him above those other 70 guys in the sanhedrin he was known as this great teacher He was the one who was supposed to be able to explain everything. He's like, Jesus, tell me how this works. I don't get it. Jesus, are you the teacher of Israel? Jesus seems to think that what he's saying is nothing new. And it's not. Every concept Jesus brings up ever in all of his teaching exists in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Everything Jesus teaches comes straight from the Hebrew Scriptures. So for those you know who say, well, I don't need an Old Testament in my Bible. It may be wrong. Because if you want to know what Jesus is talking about, you have to read the first two-thirds of the book. Now, Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He's going to give him a little more information here, starting in verse 11. He says, Very, very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. This is the only place Jesus speaks in the royal we, by the way. Verse 12, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is like, look, I'm trying to explain things to you. If you listen to me teach, you should hear it, you should get it. You obviously get enough of it. You're coming to ask me these questions. But you're still not accepting that what God said was true. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. You want me to tell you how it works in heaven? What good is that going to do? You don't have any experience of that. I'm trying to explain to you in your terms. Then he gives this example. Verse 14 says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. You all know what that snake thing means, right? See, back in uh, Numbers... uh Uh-oh, I should have looked this up. It's either 21 or 22. The... uh, Israelites are finally moving towards the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And they wander through this one desert area. And they're wandering through this desert and they start whining. They're like, God, why are we still walking? The promised land is over there and you're making us go all the way around this side just because someone promised we wouldn't kill those people. Now we have to walk all the way over here. We don't want to walk. It's a long way. It's through the desert. It's already been 40 years. This is going to take another two weeks. God's like, really? I've had it with you. He lets snakes from the desert go out among the people. So they go through an area of this desert. There's thousands of these poisonous snakes. And when it bites, it turns your blood to fire. Not literally. It's just the way it feels apparently. I've never tried it myself. I'm happy not to. You fever up, you convulse, and you die. And these thousands of snakes go out and they start biting the thousands of people. Now, I'm assuming God didn't just like send an army of snakes out. I'm assuming that as they went through the desert, the snakes just started to bite them because it's an area they weren't ready for. And where God had protected them before, he took his protection away and let them deal with their own consequences and the people then went to Moses and said, um, we believe that we have maybe sinned. Could you speak to God for us about the snakes? And Moses went to God and said, all right, could you help me with deal with the people with the snakes thing? God said, sure. Here, go make a bronze snake. Just a bronze snake, like six feet long. Put it on a pole and stick it up on top of the tent of meeting where you can see it. All the people in camp could look at it and see it. And know exactly what they're looking at. A snake. And then, when they get bit, tell them, look at the snake and you'll be okay. Hallelujah. Yes. There's a faith test for you. Do you believe in God or do you not believe in God? The people who looked at the snake lived... The people who did not look at the snake did not live. So when you got bit by a snake, you had an immediate moment where you tested your faith. Do I believe that God is going to save me the way he said? Or do I believe that I'm dead because I've been bitten by a snake? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This is not a healing experience. Or maybe I should say it's not just a healing experience. This is a life-changing encounter with God. Amen. Looking at that snake was a life-changing encounter with God. Because once you looked at that snake and you lived, you knew your faith was true. Amen. Like that. And lift it up. Jesus seems to have used a, a, a word here that could mean either being elevated... Like to have been promoted or to have been made the king. Or it was also used to refer to being nailed to a tree as you were crucified. Be nailed to that crossbeam and then lifted up. It's the same word. Elevated, lifted up. This is a double meaning. And Jesus using it this early in his ministry is something that apparently stuck with Nicodemus. And would stay with him. This idea of being elevated and lifted. And at some point in the evening here, Nicodemus left. And when he left, he seems to have been fairly unresolved about who Jesus was and what he was supposed to do with what he had heard. The next time we hear about Nicodemus is about a year, year and a half later. Midway through Jesus' teaching on earth. They're at the Festival of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. Jesus has gone to Jerusalem. He started teaching in the temple about halfway through the festival. And people start to say, wow, this guy, he must be the Messiah. Listen to the way he teaches. We've heard the stories about all the things that he's done. He must be the Messiah. The religious teachers have done nothing to arrest him or stop him. Therefore, he must be the Messiah. And hearing this, the religious leaders tried to stop him. (laughs) because They thought, well, I guess we better do something. So they sent the temple guards to arrest him. But they didn't. They didn't arrest him. They went out to arrest him and they stopped and listened to him teach instead. And then after Jesus left, they came back in. John chapter 7, verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? "Uh, No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. Do you mean he has deceived you also? the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in Him? No. But that mob out there knows nothing of the law. There's a curse on them. That's how they believe. Jesus is obviously uh, getting His message out. Everyone who's listening to Him is just cursed. That's all there is to it. Verse 50, though, says, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? Maybe he's not ready to say, hey, I believe in him. Because that would have put a stop to that line there, wouldn't it? But he is willing to say, well, wait a minute, maybe we need to listen to him first. Maybe we should hear what he has to say. Verse 52, they replied, what, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You'll find that prophets do not come out of Galilee. Are you kidding? Who comes out of Galilee? Fishermen. They smell funny. Prophets. We don't get prophets from Galilee. We don't hear about Nicodemus again for a while, not for about another year, year and a half after that. At the end of the Passover, Jesus has been arrested, he's been beaten. He's been taken out, executed, hung up on a cross, still dead. Verse 38 of John chapter 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. So he believed. He didn't say anything about it before this. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. It's a lot, if you're wondering. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Well, it kind of was in accordance with Jewish burial customs, It was in accordance with the way you buried a king. This was no, like, peasant burial. This was 75 pounds of some of the most expensive spices on earth. Nicodemus seems to have made his decision to follow Jesus. What an interesting time to take his faith public. Right after Jesus has been executed. A leader among the Pharisees and his partner, the leader among the Sadducees, go and get the body and give it a royal burial. During Passover, well, right before Passover, this is the day of preparation, that meant they wouldn't be able to participate in any of the Passover activities that were their responsibilities because they had touched the dead body. So they were unclean for at least a week. Passover only lasted a week. They couldn't do anything. They have not only made a public declaration they've done it in a big very public way that they believe that jesus was who he claimed to be i'm guessing nicodemus probably remembered what jesus said and thought this isn't the end this elevation is not the end unlike most of jesus's disciples nicodemus might have actually paid attention to what the teacher had taught He might have understood what Jesus said was coming. Or perhaps he was just mourning the loss of the Messiah and thought he'd give him a royal burial. You know, Nicodemus was said to be one of the three richest men in Jerusalem. Kind of cool. In fact, uh, there's there talk about his daughter's wedding in uh, some of the ancient writings and how much it cost for her to live. Apparently, she spent a gold denarii every week to get a certain kind of tea or soup delivered to her. Uh, Golden denarii, let's see. Think 10 years wages. And her dowry was like 10,000 of those when she got married. He was so rich that people used him as an example of more money than you can count kind of thing. But his encounter with Jesus changed everything. We're told he became a teacher. In the Christian Church, that's what Christian tradition holds. Sadly, I don't have any scripture about him beyond this point. Tradition in the uh, in the Talmud, the Jewish writings, say that Nicodemus, who had been the third richest man in Jerusalem, after he became a follower of Jesus, was persecuted along with the Christians. He was cut out of business deals. People cheated him, took advantage of him, and impoverished him. They said that his daughter ended up making a living shoveling cow dung. Which, depending on your perspective, could have been them saying, Look what comes from following Jesus. You go from blessed because you have everything to obviously God hates you because you have nothing. But from a Christian perspective, You go from chasing after the things of the world to finding joy in the things of life. Treasures are are elsewhere than on earth. Yeah, treasures in heaven. Encountering Jesus changes lives. Nicodemus' life was changed. Even if all the rest of that non-scriptural stuff was made up. Which I don't think it was. It's pretty well attested. But even if that was all made up, just the part we have in Scripture, just the part where a member of the Sanhedrin, a leader of the Sanhedrin, gives Jesus the world's most expensive royal burial after he's dead, that is enough of a declaration of faith to have completely changed his life. Encountering Jesus changes everything. Have you encountered Jesus? If things haven't changed by knowing about Jesus, you might want to go back and look again and see if you've encountered Jesus. With that, I'm going to close this prayer this morning. Father, thank you for encounters with Jesus. Thank you for uh, the way that getting to know Jesus and the things that He has to say changes our lives. Not necessarily by making us rich or poor in worldly things, but by making us rich in spiritual things. Father, if there's a single person here who has not allowed their life to be changed in spirit by passing through Your Spirit and following Your path, wherever that takes them, Lord, I pray that you would let the story of Nicodemus weigh on them. So that, like Nicodemus, as time goes by, as they think about it, as they investigate the claims for themselves to try to discover the truth, that they find the truth. I thank you for all the times that that has happened in the past and all the times that will happen in the future. And Lord, I thank you that you do invite us to investigate the truth of your claims. As we go out of this place today and into the world, I pray that you would help us to remember how Jesus changed our lives. Help us to cling to that in challenging times and celebrate it every much as we do in blessed times. Thank you that the blessed times always outnumber the challenges, no matter how it feels when we're going through them. We pray all this in the name of that same Jesus Christ. Amen.